You're listening to the Taming Hindrances Podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health, as well as a dive into this thing known as spirituality. We talk about everything and anything on the podcast, so come get triggered. That's right. Come get triggered. Taming Hendricks' podcast. Welcome to the podcast. My name's Phil, the host and creator of the podcast. Uh, and I got another episode for you. Episode 60. Big number there. Made it to episode 60 here. The topic of discussion today is, uh, well, I'm just going to rant. I'm going to go on a little rant. Last episode, I did the Waypoint episode. Episode 59 is a great entry point to the podcast. Uh, I like to do little entry points every once in a while. I did one back at, um, oh, what was that? Uh, it's been a while. Let's see. Ah, it was a while ago. There was episode 42, I think it was. Yeah, episode 42, we did a recap. Episode 59, we did the Waypoint episode. And today's episode is all about history. And I'm going to bitch about some stuff because that's what I'm really good at doing. Uh, as always, we'll head over to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary to grab the definition of history to start all this off. And I'm going to go on all sorts of different tangents today because, well, it's an important topic not only on a personal level, you know, when we talk about our histories and we talk about mental health and self-awareness, we talk about, you know, how do we share our histories with each other? It, there's a lot going on here. So I want to cover a multitude of topics, but I'm going to start out in the realm of self-awareness, mental health, where I typically talk. And we're talking about spirituality a little bit as well, because I've been diving more and more into that and what it's all about and how we, uh, how we go about understanding our own. But to start, here we go. History, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. The first Number one definition for the noun of history is two words, tale and story. We're going to get into that in a second because I think it, um, it it's going to shine some light on not only what's happening in modern society, what has happened in modern society, haha, history, uh, but what happens with ourselves and other things. But uh, another one here is if we go into the second definition, Merriam-Webster's as a noun history, a chronological record of significant events, such as those affecting a nation or institution, often including an explanation of their causes. So that would be like, um, you know, as Miriam Webster say here, an option of that would be the history of Japan, the history of America, those types of things. Uh, there's also a treatise presenting systemic, systematically related natural phenomena as of geography, animals, or plants, um, an account of a patient's medical background, an established record. So, we can have the history of something, right? There's the history of you. That would be the second definition here is the history of you, some sort of definition in that realm. The third definition is a branch of knowledge that records and explains past events. So that's a specific time period history or a specific topic history. Again, this would also cover the history of you, the history of your family, maybe the history of your uh, kids or your, you know, maybe your your significant other's history or you know, something specific specifically defined as the history of one thing or topic or subject. Uh, we have, you know, events that form the subject matter of a history, the events of the past, one that is finished or done for, you know, the, the actual defining history as of, you know, we can have the history of a person after they pass away. We would, you know, honor their history. We have previous treatment, handling, or experience. Um, that's, you know, so a skill. The history of something makes it the skill of it. All of that said... Coming back to the very beginning here, we have two words. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines history. The first definition is two words, tale and story. And in our personal story for this episode, here's where things start to get real interesting real quick. 
So jumping into the definition of what a tale is, a tale, the noun, is a usually imaginative narrative of an event. That's a tale. Um, an intentionally untrue report. That's what a tale is. A series of events or facts told or presented, that would be an account of something, uh, a report of a private or confidential matter, a libelous report or piece of gossip, important word there, libelous, uh, we have account, a tally, a total, uh, discourse, talk. Remember, I did a, a discourse episode. So those are tales, right? And tale, as defined here, is a usually imaginative narrative of an event. Now, remember how I classify imagination. Imagination is one of the most important things that we have as humans. It's actually a defining factor of us being humans. The action of magic is to bring things from our imagination into the reality in which we live in. So it's not, you know, I don't think it's a surprise here that imagination would be involved in how we go about explaining things, telling other people things. Uh, you know, when we talk about tale, yeah, it might have that, you know, a usually imaginative narrative or a narrative there or an in intentionally untrue report. We'll talk about the human system and how the mind works and how our system works as far as memory works here in a bit. But I don't think it's far-fetched to say that history, yes, does involve tales. That's how we tell history. Modern history has been told through tales. Uh, the, even written history, you know, we take something that's like, oh, we put it into writing. Well, that was really only important when writing was a hard thing to do and not everyone could do. And even then it was important because of the specific class structures in which someone would be able to do that. So we'll get into that in a little bit here if I remember, because there's going to be a lot going on on this episode. But let's take that second definition here for the second word, stories. We had tale, now we have story. Story is an account of incidents or events, a statement regarding the facts pertinent to a situation in question, uh, or an anecdote. Um, there's a lot of anecdotal information, right? It's a story. A fictional narrative shorter than a novel is also a, we refer to as a short story. The intrigue or plot of a narrative or dramatic work. Interesting, dramatic or narrative work there. That's the intrigue or plot part is the story part. Uh, a widely circulated rumor would be a story. A lie or a falsehood would be a story. A legend or a romance would be a story. A news article or broadcast, also a story. A matter or situation, also a story. Uh, and the archaic words that were used is uh, history in the sense of one and three. So we go back to history, the definition here is a tale or a story or a branch of knowledge that records and explains past events. So when we talk about history from the very defined point of what the word history is telling us, it's an account that may be true or untrue. We're not really sure. Uh, it's just, it's just a, a record of sorts, you know, be it written, unwritten, verbal, nonverbal. Um, we look at the history in the sense of how it's told, right? That's really what this definition is pointing us towards is how history is told. Now we have schools of knowledge and we have schools of, um, we'll call them art and action, you know, like things like uh, archaeology, uh, geology, the study of the history of things. And in that we have the scientific method and the scientific method is how we go about picking out what is plausible, not plausible, and what is fact and, and probably not fact or not true. So history is just the telling of there are methods that can be applied to historical record or historical uh, situations that would then give us a better understanding. Now, 
this is really important, specifically in modern society, because I've said many times on this podcast that history is typically written by the victor and hidden by the loser, right? So those who have won wars or those powers that have taken control, they get to write down what's true and untrue in the form of history. Now, the loser will hide what they don't want the winner to know. So we, we have this purely human tract of, you know, the, the hot terms nowadays are, you know, uh, misinformation or what's the science? What's the science say? Well, the science is a fucking action. It's a, a system of trying to decipher if something's true or untrue or plausible, not plausible. Typically that starts with a hypothesis. That's where you start the scientific method. You have a question and you have a hypothesis. We don't apply that to news or articles or history. And this is at the broad scale, but again, I wanted to start, let's bring it down into the, the microcosm of mental health and self-awareness, right? So when we talk about our histories, we have to ask ourselves some very important questions. Are we telling a tale or a story and how true or untrue is it? Um, it's pretty easy to lie. It really is. You know, we tell white lies all the time or we tell half truths or we have a bunch of words for that, that make up this, you know, world of the tales and stories we tell ourselves. In fact, we have a whole rich history of bards and, uh, you know, people who told stories and tales for entertainment. Uh, so it's kind of natural in some sense to imagine, to have something like the imagination and that to take over what we're kind of telling ourselves or telling others. I have for a very long time in my life lied. I, I used to lie all the time, constantly, because my life was a boring shit show that I either wanted to hide or I wanted someone else to like me or pay attention to me. So I, I would give some, some lavish, uh, important pieces that really weren't quite true where I would talk something up. I, it was constant all the time. It was a lot coming from a background of I just wanted someone to pay attention to me. I was a lonely little kid who you know, didn't get a lot of time with friends or family. And I spent a lot of time alone. And back then I really wanted people to pay attention to me. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be popular. Later on, I realized that that was all pointless and I didn't actually care about it. But when I was okay, I used to lie all the time. I also used to lie for function, uh, which I think is where people tend to learn how to lie. In fact, lying is an often learned or taught trait. You know, you watch our parents lie. We watch our siblings lie or our family members. We watch people lie to each other all the time. Uh, we make whole stories out of lies. This whole idea of drama that, you know, somebody's comedy, which sometimes comedy in someone's drama and someone's drama is someone's comedy. This idea of these lies that we tell each other back and forth becomes entertaining to us. And, and a lot of stories that we look at as far as entertainment, you know, being it a Netflix show or a movie or or um, an interesting this or that is a tale or a story and often involves lies to bring in drama and intrigue and to get us excited about it. So lies have very much become part of history or specifically our history. So I, you know, I wonder what kind of, what kind of lies are we telling ourselves? And I, I talked about this a little bit back when I talked about the truth episode back in episode 13, like what's your truth and those types of things. But I didn't quite get into the history of it. And the history of it is what's your tale or story? Because that's how we define history. So you have to kind of look at 
what can I let go? What parts of the story don't need to be applied here? So when we talk about tales and stories, I'm a wonderful weaver of words and magistry as far as uh, to magistrate over the English language as much as I can. And I'm not the best by far, but I can weave some interesting words and tales together to tell a fantastical story to intrigue my listeners or those people I might be finding myself talking to in an event or uh, get together a soiree, if you will, that I must entertain with some revelry of word. And so I am minstrel-like in that sense, or bard-like in that sense, although maybe not bard-like because I don't sing much, but minstrelly. Um, and so in that regard, it's easy to tell fantastical tales or stories. But when we think about ourselves and the everyday actions of going to work, coming home, you know, putting on our basketball shorts and locking the door behind us or going out to the bar or going to the grocery store or all of these little mundane pieces we typically leave out of stories or we skip over or just kind of like use an ellipsis to kind of represent, you know, very often used in some classy uh, writing of romance when you, you know, Please insert your understanding here and nice ellipses of like, and the two lovers went into the back room and, you know, ellipses, figure out what happened. Those types of things. We have these fill in the blank moments, right? And, and so when we talk about history and we talk about our history, or our family history, there are much to do with fill in the blank moments, telling a story, telling a tale. And we'll go back to the definitions here. A tale is usually an imaginative narrative of an event. Wouldn't we love to be very important and, or just to even to ourselves, a more exciting life or a more defined understanding of the, the, I don't know, uh, just everyday activities. Wouldn't that be much better to feel like that's a little bit more entertaining or exciting so that we can get through it a little bit easier. So we use our imagination. That's kind of what we do. Now that doesn't make it an invention because invention is the use of the imagination to bring it into reality. So maybe it just stays as an imaginative event in our minds, but we have this thing known as language and we have this thing known as discourse and we have this thing known as human connections and interactions, which allows the imagination to kind of bleed through into our quote unquote reality. So yes, it's very easy to tell ourselves stories or tales of our history. Even if we've lived through it, we can make it a little bit more exciting, right? We can say like, oh, you know, we can add connotation. We can add depth. We can add, and that's always up to the storyteller, always up to the writer, but it's also up to the listener and the reader and the person interacting with the story to add their own connotation. So you might try to convey something using, uh, you know, maybe lavish uh, use of verb and, and noun and, and ex exultory of excite excitation and those types of things to be a good minstrel of a story. But the reader might just, or the listener might just go, oh, that sounds very quaint or very boring. Uh, so it's, it's a back and forth play and there's a lot to lose in between those things. In fact, humans are really terrible storytellers or tale stillers, fantastical narratives, absolutely of fantasy and non-fiction. I'm sorry, of fiction, uh, of telling a story of non-fiction, we tend to add tale and story. We tend to add imaginative narratives. We tend to add un un intentionally untrue reports just to add some spice in there. We misuse language 
regularly. It would be really tough for everybody to understand uh, a modicum of the English language and how to use it. We often think of our modern languages as kind of upgrades or, um, you know, uh, better uses and that like we have this archaic use of of historical languages and the preposterousness of uh, how we used to speak. Well, that's kind of actually bullshit. In fact, uh, history would tell us that the way we used to speak was much more poignant. Um, the fact that we had to use specific verbiage and noun, and you had to learn that, and there was a, a class structure around the idea of the of the verbiage, the vernacular you would use to make you not only seem intelligent, but you would have intelligent, poignant speak, so that we could decipher what is the connotation, what kind of lies are you trying to tell us. If we look at language, or the way I look at language, um, language in the Middle Ages or, you know, or throughout any historical reference of events and the way it's written and the way it's understood and the way it's portrayed, we give it this kind of airy like, oh, it's very archaic in the way we used to speak, which is great. But really, if you look a little deeper, I think you would find... We would make people speak that way because we were trying to figure out how they're bullshitting us because everyone was bullshitting everybody all the time. You know, imagine for a second you lived in a world where, and I'm not stepping very far back here, that there were no paved streets. Everything was dirt and, you know, people threw excrement and, you know, rotten food, just threw it on the street in some places. And so... No, life was not fun or lavish, but there was a massive disparity even back then between what would be fun and lavish and, you know, just the general everyday street situation. So you would have quite a bit of this word known as animosity. And I might actually do a whole episode on animosity because it's a very interesting word and it's very poignant to today's times. Uh, this understanding of this building of animosity that would create a disparity of language. And so you would use a specific vernacular to give an air of an importance or to help try to find out if someone was bullshitting you or not. And so the history of just language is important just for that particular reason to, to, you know, figure out like, was this that person bullshitting me? Were they telling the truth? Were they so, when we look at the history of ourselves, coming back to the mental health and self-awareness idea, are you telling yourself a story or a tale? Are you telling others a story or a tale? Uh, I've had some conversations recently when talking about my history, and I tell it very differently than I might have told it in my teenage youthful years or even in my 20s comparatively. I would have, you know, my early 20s specifically before, you know, 21, 22 before then into my teenage years, I wanted to be important. I wanted everyone to like me. I wanted to, to seem important because I came from nothing. I came from, you know, a poor farmer and seamstress. That was my parents. They were a farmer and a seamstress for the most part, a military farmer uh, and a seamstress uh, and then later clean houses. And, you know, so no, they were not of import in that regard. Uh, they weren't even fairly well educated. They were high school educated, non-college, you know, hard workers. But I was, you know, I came from a, a poor family in a very rich area. Um, poor in that regard. You know, yeah, we got by and we ate fairly well. But like, no, we were not, you know, 
driving Mercedes and, you know, going to lavish meals out and stuff like that. No, we're just, just farm kids for the most part. And then as my education started to kick in, but more so my, uh, my seeking of information, really, I learned that there's all these differences in languages and all these different types of things. So I wanted to make myself seem more important than I was because that's how I would maybe make it big. I, I would get the, I would pull the, you know, wool over the sheep's eyes or something like along those lines. I, I would, I would find a way to get someone to pay attention to me or notice me to raise me out of my status. And that's commonality between all sorts of different backgrounds and understandings, historical or not historical, modern society to archaic societies. There was very much of that that went around. Um, it's almost ingrained in humanity, this whole understanding of class structure, but it didn't always exist that way. We just see it in the modern history that we tell nowadays. So you have to question this understanding or idea of history because I used to lie about mine all the time and I'm sure others have, but now I tell it much different. So uh, going back again to the mental health and self-awareness before I jump off into one of my great rants, I'm sure I'll go on in this episode. When we think about our history and specifically when I think about mine, I used to tell it much different. Now I tell it with very... I want to make it humble statement, but just very like, no, it, it's not as cool or as, as fun as it sounds like, you know, like I, in every way, I kind of try to like, just take it all with a grain of salt. Like, yeah, I was a poor kid from a farm. It, I know it sounds terrible kind of to say this, but like take it all with a grain of salt. Like it really just wasn't because it's coming from my perspective because it's my history. So I get to write it, right? I get to try to give out the connotation of the narrative. And also I have to understand that people are going to take it differently. There are a great many people out there who understandably hear that I was sexually abused and go, oh, oh my God, that's, that's horrible. And to me, it was just like a minute thing on the scale of the other shit that I dealt with. And like, it's just like a, and so we have this pers perspective scale and this connotation scale. And that's why I say depression is so uniquely who you are that no one else can understand. All of these things go into my depression, right? My history makes up part of my depression, part of the way I see things, part of the way I, I talk about things or understand things is this reference to my history. And I tell it much differently nowadays. I say like, eh, yeah, you know, the sexual abuse stuff. Okay. Like, yeah, physical abuse too. There was a little bit of that. And uh, yeah, grow poor. And you know, yeah, it sounds like a tragic backstory for a great side character, you know, like that random character that walks in and makes a quirky remark and everybody kind of laughs at it a little bit more because they're like, oh shit, like, like, no, and hush, hush. It's like, oh no, that guy came from like some shit. Like, that's why it's funny. And, you know, that kind of just gets passed around in that sense. I'm not a main character here in any way. I don't even know if I really want to be a main character. I think I've done a lot in my life to not stand out to be a little bit more in the shadows. This podcast is probably one of the biggest things I've ever done to like put myself out into the, the spotlight a little bit more. And even then I'm kind of like, no, 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 this is more about you than it is about me. I'm just trying to give you my tale, my story. It's very minstrel like, right? Um, so with that regard or tour, like, I guess maybe a little bit barred, like anyway, um, when we look at our histories, I think it's an important topic to come back and say like, well, how do I tell it? And how has that, how has that changed? Right? So when I look at how I used to talk about my history, Oh, I wanted everyone to be like, Oh, you poor thing. Let me give you an opportunity. I was trying to use it to my, my advantage, trying to use my, my shitty upbringing and, and shitty lifestyle back then to my advantage. 
and not use it as a character building exercise. Like I had a shitty character, even with all that background, like my character was still pretty shitty. Yeah. I had work ethic and I, I stayed humble and I, I, I kept it and even saying stayed humble, I guess it's not very humble, but whatever at this point, I, I tried to keep it very low key, I guess is the, a better statement. I tried to keep it very low key, but it didn't make my character better. The things that made my character better were the trials and tribulations I threw myself into and then survived. Right. So my martial arts training, that was brutal at some points. Um, gave me great character uh going to work living out of my car for nine months to a year whatever that i think it was around nine months um like doing that i, I don't say i was I, I mean i might say i was homeless to get the point across like when people ask me about it but really i wasn't i had a car to live in i i had places to shower and eat i worked in restaurants so there was always you know a quick meal here or there and i worked constantly i worked like 80 70 80 hour work weeks just to like keep busy do stuff save up money to get an apartment um I didn't have a large support structure, you know, that built character. But in the, t in the moment, you know, we don't often think about those things of like, oh, well, this is a char character building exercise. Other people might say that about it, but eventually I learned to say that about it. And it was a learned thing to go back over my history and be like, you know what? No, that was a really just good character building thing. My point of reference now for connotation is vast. You know, my, when I talk about duality and I talked about duality is actually Trinity, uh, whereas, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. What are you trying to measure? One, I have quite a few coins in my purse at this point, but also the volume of those coins, the, the type of those coins, the, the size of those coins is great. I can measure things quite at a, at a, at a, at a quite large scale. You know, when you ask me what, um, what success looks like or, what happiness looks like typically with happiness, I'll just be like, well, it's bullshit. Um, it's, it's a measurement. And in fact, what makes you content can better define what makes you happy. I have fun answers like that because I lived it. And so I have these great measurement skills. And so with this understanding and this talk about history, I think it's a really good idea to check back in and ask yourself, like, how are you telling the tale of yourself? How are you telling the tale of your history? What does it look like? What are you trying to portray with the narrative you're trying to weave or talk? What is in your imagination when you try to, you know, tell people about yourself in that regard? And does it match what you're actually telling yourself? You know, we would love to think that this whole understanding of, um, wishful thinking. And, um, um, I keep, I always forget the terms that people use cause I just don't pay attention to it. Cause I know it's kind of a little bit BS, but like the secret and like, uh, the wish boards and, uh, all of those practices for like positive thinking, positive interaction. And, you know, uh, universe will like, you know, bring it in, it'll bring it into fruition. Well, that's all great. But if you don't take the small steps along the way, the story never happens. It's just a tale. Right. So that's the differentiation between tale and story here. When we talk about history, the definition is tale and story, right? That's the first definition Miriam Webster's gives us. It doesn't give us a broken down contextual understanding. It gives us two words, tale and story. So my challenge is, are you telling a tale or telling a story? And here's the differentiation. A tale is a usually imaginative narrative of an event in an intentionally untrue report, a series of events or facts told as presented, told or presented, uh, discourse talk, but let's just use those two, right? So a usually imaginative narrative of an event 
or an intentionally untrue report, a series of events or facts told or presented, a report of private or confidential matter, a libelous report uh, or piece of gossip. So those, that's, a, that's a tale, right? So are you telling a tale or are you telling a story? Let's go to story. An account of incidents or events, a statement regarding the facts pertinent to a situation in question, an anecdote, a fictional narrative shorter than a novel, uh, the intrigue or plot of a narrative or dramatic work, a widely circulated rumor. You know, so which are you telling? An account of or imagination of? Are you imagining the narrative or are you telling an account of the narrative? Both could be completely untrue. This history does not make something true. Just telling the history of something doesn't give it fact or fiction. It's simply a telling of either a imaginative narrative or an account of a narrative. The narrative being the tale or the story. It's the way in which we describe things occurred or are occurring or going to occur. But was it imaginative or an account of? Right, so where's the basis for it? If your basis is an imaginative telling, great. I mean, I'm all about imagination. Remember, I tell you that's one of the principal understandings of being human is to have this thing known as imagination, which means you can create magic, which is bringing imagination into reality. But how does that occur? Because that too is history. You know, anytime we talk about a, a large historical event that we actually consider quote unquote modern or ancient or uh, pre-civilization history, there has to be some sort of account of it. That's the story of it. But in the moment of it all, there was the tale, right? So we tell the tale of the three warring periods in China. Or I was, uh, uh, yeah, I'm saying that incorrectly, but it doesn't really uh, matter so much as um, the tale of the three kingdoms. There we go. Uh, that's a tale of the history of the Chinese empire of the, these three specific uh, warring families that uh, I believe was the Sun, the Chin, and the... I apologize, I don't remember the last one. Um, but we have the, th the Three Kingdoms era, Tale of the Three Kingdoms era of China, of these warring families and parties. And it, it's a amazing tale, absolutely. And, but, you know, when we get down to the minutia of, like, the actual story behind it all, there's political intrigue. It's, it's, it's fantastical, right? Great books and, and plays and... Um, historical reenactment even of it all have come out, you know, uh, in modern society. And we tell these great tales of the three kingdoms warring period in Japan. We talk about, um, the unification of Japan, uh, the, the, what would be considered the samurai era of the, the Edo period where we had the warring states of Japan, the, the, the tale of the warring states period of Japan. And we have both tale and story there. During the moment, it was the tale of. People would tell tales of these fantastical battles. We, we talk about in uh, Japanese history, they talk about the Battle of Sakihara. Um, and it's a, a amazing, uh, one, it's an amazing battle just as the political structure and also the the way it the, the battleground was defined and how it was used by the different um, uh, armies and their generals. But also it has been uh, fictionalized into some amazing works of uh, the way they tell it. And with that, we can look at, and those are just two examples. There's um, talking about 
the tales of on the Silk Road of the Ottoman Empire and also the tales of the Mongol horde, right? We talked about that in history. The Mongols made a huge impact onto history. And that was, you know, not too long ago. Um, I can look it up for you and give it here in a second. But we have all of these, um, you know, time periods and there was tale. So during the, typically during the era, there's the tale of it all. And then we have the story of it all. And so that's the imagination piece. Someone um, in any one of these um, amazing historical, you know, time periods. We, so how it's broken out in modern English um, Western history. Uh, and I believe some sort of Eastern history as well. They kind of agree upon this. We have what's known as the ancient world, which was about 3,500 BC to about, um, you know, zero or, you know, what would be 180 um, and then we have the medieval world. It's the medieval time period. So these are just time periods. We have the ancient world, 3,500 BC to about 580. Uh, the medieval world, which is about 580 to about 1500 AD. And then we have the modern world, which is 1500 to the present. Um, which if you do the math, because we're in 2000, quote unquote, the 2000s, and it goes back to 3,500 uh, BC, that's only 5,500 years of information for as far as historical record. Now they classify it that because that's supposed to be like written history, right? We found cases of writing well before then. Um, in fact, recently I believe they found, I don't remember how old it was, but it's somewhere in BC. Uh, let's just use a, a close number because of the time frame uh, had to do with the, I believe it was the Byzantian Empire which would have been Mesopotamian era, which is somewhere between 3,500 to 550 BC. So let's just pick a number in between, say it's like 2000. Uh, they had, or someone has recently figured out, and it hasn't completely been verified, but I think it's an interesting understanding that it's possible that some of the writing from the Byzantine Empire actually describes trigonometry, right? And we think of trigonometry to be part of the Greek era, which happened in the 1200 BCs, but it was before then, you know, so it was possible that people understood trigonometry before the Greeks, right? We just referenced the Greeks because they were one of the eras or uh, great civilizations that wrote a lot more and had more historical record. Now, Phil, where are you going with all this? Think about that in your daily life, in your personal life, right? It's possible that in your history, childhood you had some great outlooks on things, had some great tales they wanted to tell, right? And the story just kind of, well, did what all great stories do, and it had twists and turns and drama and comedy, and it turned out into where it is now. But it doesn't mean it's the full written history of you. It's just the, maybe it is just the ancient version of you. Maybe you're moving into the medieval version of you. I believe in my own personal story, I believe I'm finally moving into the medieval me. Um, although I'd much rather be into the modern me or other way around, actually, I would rather have it that there was modern me and then there's, there's medieval me and I'm moving into ancient me. Uh, it's funny that we think about history as far as the civilizations in the world go in one set of terms, we talk about our lifetimes in a different set of terms. I don't know if you've ever looked at that, but in historical record, we have ancient, which is very old, right? And then we have medieval, which is, you know, a little bit more in between, middle. And then we have modern, which is, uh, you know, current. 
But when we talk about our, our historical record of ourselves, our lifetimes, we have what would be youthful, and then we have middle age, uh, which would be that medieval period, very similar. But then we have ancient, which is actually us older, but currently older, right? It's it, We talk about ancient past, which is a long time ago, but we talk about ancient us is actually the older version of us. So it's actually moving into the future. So that's why we have sayings like, you know, those who are doomed to repeat history, they're doomed, right? Because they didn't learn from it. So what can we learn from our history? Well, we can learn that there's a tale and a story. So what kind of tales was very imaginative you trying to tell? Did you forget about them? Have you looked back at them? It's an interesting thing to look back at, you know, what the tales you were telling as a child were. Mine were lies. They were lies and they were deceitful and they were not very intelligent. Uh, but they had some interesting pieces to it. You know, there was this part of me, even in my tales, that kind of wrote the story of me being involved with people. I, I wanted to be useful. I wanted to be helpful. I wanted to, you know, not need people, but people to pay attention for specific reasons. Now people do pay attention to me. Apparently they pay attention to this podcast. They pay attention to me when I speak, uh, or used to speak in public settings. I haven't done that in quite a long time. If you'd like to book me for a, a, a speaking engagement, I'm, I'm happy to do this. You can find the button on my website at tamingindresses.com slash contact. There's a booking button. I would be happy to speak at your event if it's something you feel would benefit you or your audience. Um, or if you just think it would be fun to have me there, I'm also open to those understandings and, uh, and, and attempts at a, a public speaking event. But, you know, that was being told as very young me because I wanted everyone to like me. I was just going about it wrong. Instead of being a good source of information as far as wisdom and knowledge uh, and being a very uh, professional uh, individual in or high ranking, not high ranking, but... Um, professionally active individual in my community or being helpful to my community, which is why I say everyone needs to be of service to be a good quality service uh, employee to my community, essentially as, as the professional setting I provide with my body work, uh, my knowledge of the human body, my knowledge of my philosophy about the human connections of mind, body, and spirit, my understanding of historical background or, you know, importance of the, the way we look at information or vernacular, the way we use verbiage and all of this different information I've collected, my martial arts background, my um, background in, you know, food and, and culture and, and all of my, you know, understandings that I've built throughout my story so far. The commonality there comes from tales I used to tell. I wanted to be important. I wanted people to like me. I was just going about it the wrong way, which is why I've come up with more modern me has a saying, uh, don't trust the person always seeking your praise or pity. I would have not have trusted young me now that I know this. I would have not have trusted little me trying to, you know, weasel my way. Not little. I was actually quite, quite rotund back then. Um, little me trying to get people to like me and get people to pay attention. I was just was going about it the wrong way. Instead of putting in the effort and putting in the time and, you know, doing the menial tasks to have someone eventually go, oh yeah, all right, this kid's actually a pretty hard worker. I, I didn't learn that till well into my 20s that like, or start practicing that 
not to get people to pay attention to me, but just practicing it because it was the right thing to do. It was who I was. You know, there was always the tale of hardworking me. I've, I've always told that tale that I was a hard worker and I, I did what I said I was going to do. Even though I was lying a lot, the lies were more to make myself seem more important than I was or to seem better at something I was. And so instead of getting better at it, not that I didn't do it, I just wasn't getting quite better at it. I would tell tales about how better I was or, you know, how cool or coof I was. And that was all lies. It was all bullshit. But it did build into something. And that's more of the modern story of me of like, oh, no, it did build some character, right? Even my deceitfulness built character of knowing like, oh, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want people to think I'm a liar. I don't want people to think I'm deceitful in those ways. I do want to have credibility because I am a professional and I want, and so I, I started to let go of those things. And so I wonder if you looked at your own history, what are the tales little you was telling? You know, and, and what are the commonalities there that built into the character of the story you tell nowadays? And so we look at tales as the imaginative narrative, and we look at stories as the account of those narratives. What, what happened? And again, they might not be true, but they do build a picture. And from that picture, we can have a better understanding of our history and how it affects us and how it drives us or motivates us or how it demotivates us, what it looks like as far as our depression and how it came about and is built and works. Remember, I can never understand your depression. I will certainly try. Uh, and I will certainly make connections because I believe depression to be the one unique thing that is us, but also uniquely connects us uh, throughout all things, no matter what they are. But again, going back to, I can't understand it. I, I, I would like to hear the story of it because that's, that's kind of the important part is that we share that and we talk about that. And so looking at the tales of you, the narrative imaginative stories that turned into the story or is continuing to be the story of you and what the account of the things that happen look like, even if they are lies or maybe half truths or only a modicum of a lie, just a, like a little white lie or a baby lie. Um, what is the historical record there? Because it makes up your depression. And so if you're going to understand your depression, you need to know where it came from, how it got written the way it is, how it's been manipulated or coerced or how it has gotten away from you or how someone else has tried to white out a couple pages and write their own information in. In fact, when we look at the second definition of a tale, we look at an intentionally untrue report of falsehood. Who's been writing tales about you? that you've been accepting. Ooh. Oh no. Oh no, Phil, what have you done here? I have spun the narrative to make us look at what's really going on. Is your history truly yours? Because as a broad scheme of things in the macrocosm of it all, uh, the, the universal macrocosm, as well as the medium macrocosm and the micro microcosm of macrocosm, I know it's all very un- organized. Um, we are in a situation where we have to come to grips with the understanding that we don't understand history. In fact, it's quite 
uh, it's becoming quite apparent that history is probably a lie, right? A history is a tale of a story. So we have to choose what kind of history we're going to believe. I personally, this is just me, and this does not respond to, this is my own personal beliefs, shouldn't reflect upon anyone I am affiliated with, specifically purebulk.com, whose shirt I happen to be wearing right now. Uh, Shout out to Purebulk, and also head over to purebulk.com and use the Taming Hindrances coupon code for 10% off. Um, With history, nice plug there, right? Uh, As far as history goes, I don't believe the modern history we're told. In fact, I, I think it's all kind of bullshit. I think we haven't looked hard enough and we've believed people of quote unquote power because we had nowhere else to look. Now there is this thing known as decentralization, right? The decentralization of power, the decentralization of information. That's what the internet was supposed to bring around. It didn't do a great job of it. Maybe internet 2.0 or 3.0 web 3.0 might get us there. Um, we have the dissemination of actual true, not true, I can't even use the word true. We have the dissemination of information. And then we have those individuals who are willing to put in the time and effort to kind of use the scientific method to see if it's true or untrue. So before I go too far into this, right, I want to stick with just the person, right? You, your depression. Who's been telling tales about you? Intentionally untrue reports that you have written into your history, that you've written into your story, your account of it, right? Has someone given you information about yourself that's just not correct, right? But you wrote it in as being part of the story, the account of, even your account of. Has someone tales their intentionally untrue reports leaked into your account of, your telling of the story? That happened to me in just about every version of my history, my, my story, up until probably 21, 22, 23, somewhere around there. I was believing lies from my family very regularly. I was telling lies with my family, right? I was telling myself, like, no, they're family, and I have to be involved with this, and, like, this is my responsibility. Even though it was making me feel like shit, there was sexual abuse from the family side of things. There was just verbal and other abuses. There was so much lies, so much deceit. There was so much coercion. Growing up, there was the whole custody battle, um, which even there was a lie. It just got weaved into this ridiculous mess. I'll make this very quick, but I think it's very prudent to say, to give an understanding of what I'm talking about here. Not only was the custody battle full of lies, but it was a lie, right? The understanding of why one individual wanted custody over the other was monetarily driven in many ways. And I'm not saying that's the wrong thing because I understand it was probably really expensive. You know, it was probably really expensive for my dad to pay child support. You know, he probably suffered a great deal uh, to do that. And I was being told at sometimes he wasn't paying and there was other siblings. I had, uh, I think one of my other brothers was young enough at a point that he was also, you know, there were also been child support for that. And, you know, clearly on my mother's side, there had to have been some sort of monetary, you know, understanding of like, well, it's not going to be cheap to raise these kids. So I better fucking get child support. So I'm definitely going to, you know, fight that. And then there was the custody battle of like when, who got to see when, who, when, how, 
you know, uh, the why question I, I've learned to leave out of it, but I'm sure that was in there somewhere. And so there was all the lies about that, that I didn't really understand. And I was too young to really understand, but no one really even took the time to be like, Hey, Phil, there's this separation that's going to occur. And there's this custody thing. Um, and so once that came out at the time in the court systems, uh, it was, had this gone to court, I was being prepared almost groomed a little bit to pick one side or the other, because back then um, it was pretty well known by most uh, lawyers that if you put the kid on the stand and they say they wanted to live with one side or the other, the judge was going to ask that question. At least the judge was going to be like, well, would you like to live with your mother or like to live with your father? And they would, you know, ask you reasons why. So I was kind of being prepped for, you know, you want to live with dad because of this, or you want to live with mom because of this. Like, uh, and so then there became this lie coercive fight between, well, you know, we should get him to, you know, you should live with dad because, you know, it's better for you. You should live with mom before. And, and this is why, or that's why. And nowhere in any of these conversations did anyone actually tell me what happened, that my father decided to cheat on my mother with his business partner. I, I didn't know that until I was 19, 18, 19, somewhere around there. That's when I actually learned that fact. Um, that I think it was like, oh, maybe it was 1920. doesn't matter. Um, well, it kind of matters to the story, but like, I didn't know that's what actually happened. I had no idea that my father had cheated on my mother. None, zero. No one told me credit to my mother that she didn't use that as a, as a, as a fucking, you know, firing a bullet in the gun, you know, to, to seal the deal on that one, credit to her for that one, but also discredit for not really telling me what happened. Cause I was angry and I didn't understand. And I took out a lot of my anger on her and that's not her fault for not telling me, you know, it's my fault for being angry in some ways. Um, but it could have alleviated a lot to be like, Oh wait, my dad cheated on my mom. That's fucked up. I can't be my mom mad at my mom for this shit. Certainly can't be mad at my mom for trying to move on right? When she got a new boyfriend and took her a long time to do that, but eventually she did and tried to move on with her life. But like, I got mad at her for that. I never got mad at my father for living with some other woman and another, cause he, there were these, these lies, these tales that weren't true. And I was letting them being applied to my story, to my account, the way I was telling it. My brother, one of my brothers was, you know, a great weaver of tales in some ways, not really. We can't, most of us knew when he was lying, but, uh, he would just lie. And so like, now there was that whole situation of like, Oh, he would lie. So why, why shouldn't I not lie? And so then I was telling lies to one side and telling lies to the other side. And then that turned into me telling lies to like people at school and friends. And like, it just became a normal thing to tell a lie, to create a tale, to apply to my story. And eventually I started to lose track of Whose tale was it? Was it mine or was it someone else's? And so when I look back at the history of me, the account of, there's a lot of tales that weren't mine that I was telling. And so I, I ask you, like when you look back at these things, how many tales, someone else's tales, someone else's possibly intentionally untrue reports are recounted in your story. Are you, you know, when you tell a story, you're recounting, you're telling an account of. So how many of those are in there? Can you start to filter them out? Can you weed them out a little bit? 
when I started to do that with myself, it was really a, a pretty deep way of finding uh, a better understanding of my self-awareness, but an understanding of who I really was or even like what or how I wanted to represent myself as. And so when I, when I tell things about, when I, when I talk about this idea of history, tales and stories, not only from the tale side, but now to the story side, let's move a little bit further. A story is the account of the incidents or events. And we just talked about how you could be recounting or telling stories that aren't true because you're taking someone else's tale for it. You're taking someone else's imaginative narrative and applying it to your history. You, that's, it doesn't work. And there's corruption and coercion there. And there's, there's disconnect specifically. And there's specifically disconnect when we talk about mental health, because now the mind and body are having a disconnect because they're telling a story that's not true. And the, or, or I should say the heart, the connection between mind and body, the heart is having a disconnect because it's, it's not, it's not whole because the, the, the story there is not correct. It's not, and not even correctness, just it's not full, right? It's not a full heart. It's not full conversation between the body and the mind because there's this, disillusion of these tales that were told that just have are, are really not part of the story or someone else's. And so the depression isn't whole and the heart can't be whole if the depression's not whole because it's part of the mind that that's mind's understanding. It's mind's translation. So if the, if the mind can't have its depression and can't translate that correctly to the body or the body back to the mind, then the heart's not full. The connection of mind and body heart can't be full can't even really work correctly. Can't have heart. You can't put your heart into something if you don't have a, a good understanding of it, a good story that involves it. If it's someone else's heart, then it's not yours. And that's a lot what happens with family units, I think. A lot of that happens that way. Even just childhood in general, we just it's a, it's a tough thing to understand or go through in any regard. Even just being shunned or made fun of or picked on or just that one day like you wish someone would have paid attention and they didn't. And so you were just lonely and, and the world came crashing down and you had to learn that it's sorrow and terribleness and that gets weaved into the story. And so that side of it, then we go to the other side. We have soul, you know, the connection of the mind to the spirit. There's even, uh, I shouldn't say more, but there's plenty that could go on there as well. As far as the historical telling of what your soul inhabits or are just defined by that connection between mind and spirit and how many tales could have been told about that, that just weren't, were intentionally untrue that just don't add up to your story. And so now you have a heart that can't be full and you have a soul that's empty because the depression, your uniqueness has been taken away from you other people's tales and other people's opinions and other people's ways of telling it were applied to your story, your way you, you tell it. And so this entire time, I think I must apologize for my, my action. Uh, not only as just as a terrible shitty teenager and uh, youngin, but in this podcast, I've apologized many times because I have to, we have to correct our wrongs. And I was wrong to think, that 
you could easily, not easily, but you could follow along very succinctly with some of the things that I was saying to build more self-awareness and mental health. When now I realize, yes, I've defined the connection between mind and body to be heart and the connection between mind and spirit to be soul and the connection between body and, and spirit to be mind that I can't still define the connection between heart and soul because your soul and your heart could be empty due to the fact that your history could have been corrupted or coerced or dissolved or um, diluted or any one of these other words you want to add connotation to feel free, but could just be a telling of tales but not really a true or correct or whole story. But very specifically, and here's the point to pay attention to, not your story or even your tales, not your history. If your history is not yours, then your depression can't be used correctly can't be used to better yourself to understand yourself more to build more self-awareness to build more you because that's what i want in this world is i want more you i hope you want more you and maybe you don't but like we want more you we royal we and so if your history your tales and stories are not your own then your depression's not your own and so you have an empty heart or an empty soul, an empty connection between mind and body, an actually empty connection between mind and spirit. If you have an empty heart and an empty soul, ooh, that's rough. Now, luckily, you get to fill those things. But even if they're half full or maybe a piece of them is missing, even worse, missing part of my heart or missing part of my soul, right? These are statements we've used throughout all history, but I don't know if we've quite understood them to what they really could mean. And I say could because this is my own philosophy on things. This is the only way, this is the way I put it. And I'm starting to feel this might be a very important episode that I was not expecting to be this important because the things I'm coming to conclusiveness with as I tell this story of this episode, of this podcast, of this understanding of mind, body, and spirit, and how your depression is uniquely who you are. It's you. And so this history, this history, this tale and story of you needs to be you, needs to be yours. And so I ask you to take control of it or at least start to take it back, make it yours, make it what you not necessarily want it to be, but what it actually is when it becomes the substance, the story, the narrative, the tales of you. What is the legend of you? Because that's what a tale is. A tale can also be defined as, I'm sorry, story, story is a story can also be defined as a legend, you know, and what are the tales? What are... What are the imaginative narratives of who you are? Part of this gets into many things I've talked about in this podcast as far as like, yeah, kids' imaginations are being stolen away from them regularly. We need to give them back we need to, to bolster the understanding of having an imagination. It's an important part of being a human, but also it's an important part of our depressions. And as much as I would like to say that the connection between heart and soul is depression, it's not because depression is housed in the mind. It is part of the consciousness in my understanding. It is part of the, the translation between body and um, 
mind and mind and, and spirit, but not necessarily body and spirit. That, that is what mind does. So it, it, it can't be, if mind is the translation between body and spirit, it can't also be the translation between heart and soul. Because heart is the combination of mind and body, soul being the combination of mind and spirit. The translation between those two things, the connection between body and spirit is mind. So we can't fit on both parts of the ladder, unfortunately. I would really like that to be an understanding, which means in some degree that there must be something that's also mind but not mind, right? There must be something else that serves the purpose of mind, serves the purpose of translation, understanding, depression, but isn't conscious mind. It's not quite subconscious mind either because subconscious mind also is in mind of this reality. I'm still searching for that, but I've, I think I've better now defined what I'm looking for or what we as maybe a society, as a, a culture here in the West or also in the East have been searching for and what all great philosophers might have been searching for. And I know that's a big statement to make, but we're constantly searching for this thing, right? We'll just call it a thing. The history of humanity, I might say. As a principality of its history has been searching for the connection between heart and soul. Because heart and soul are the reference points between the connection of body and spirit which we call mind. That's our consciousness. Iamblichus writes it as uh, the vehicle for the soul, right? Um, that Talking about the body, how the body is the vehicle for the soul. The consciousness, though, is, is what the spirit places into the body, into the mind, actually. And that I define that whole um, situation, to, you know, be it through the understanding of how Paracelsus writes, or Iamblichus writes, how Aristotle writes, how... Um, any number of philosophers, Kant or uh, or psychologists or psychiatrists, uh, you know, when we talk about, um, I'm always lacking on names because it's not something I really. Uh, as as yes, I use this information, and these people were great writers and great philosophers and those types of things. They're not. I don't know. Um, I. I this whole idea of celebratory ideas or um, celebrities is not really my thing to do, uh, which is why, you know, I, I don't even think I'm that special in that sense because it really is it that important. I don't know. Anyway, I, I'm rambling on that subject, but you know, I don't, it's hard to explain the understanding of like what these people I think we're all kind of commonality like looking for um, like even Hypatia uh, which is um, Hypatia of Alexandria was a Neoplatonist uh, she was a philosopher, astronomer, a mathematician uh, you know she was all of these things I can't remember her name very often uh, because you know I read it and then it was a it was an add to a piece to a thing so I'm very terrible with names I apologize in that sense and, and I don't mean to just constantly recount the same individuals, Paracelsus, Iamblichus, Kant. Um, but those are the ones that probably most influenced me, even like, you know, Aristotle or, um, you know, I'm just blanking on all the Greek philosophers 
as far as uh, the Stoics, uh, you know, when I talk about these individuals, I'm not just talking about just those. I'm talking about like the the group of, and I've read quite a few, and you should too. I think it's a great idea to go read all of these um, different philosophers who wrote about the different understandings that is possible there, um, specifically on the German lineage of things. Like there's Hannah Arendt. Um, she's a political philosopher. Uh, she's also a, a survivor of the Holocaust. So, you know, very interesting take on um, existentialism um, and totalitarianism. Uh, but that's just on the political spectrum of things, right? So, um there's all of these different levels and history. There you go. There's all this different history of the philosophers out there. Um, yeah. There's also individuals who weren't only really philosophers who could be considered philosophers, uh, like Vernadsky, who wrote about the biosphere, um, who had some science background. So anyway, before I go, um, I could just fall down in that hole trying to cover up for my lack of naming names. I guess I should put it that way. With this reading of all this and, and searching for all this, I think the commonality there throughout all history, right? All the philosophical works, even the theosophical works. We want to start to bring that into the conversation here of the, you know, the church and the state and the theosophical viewpoints of different religions and, and on and on and on and on and it goes, right? When we're looking at all of these things, I think I personally, this is my philosophy here. When we talk about that, the thing we've been searching for the most, I'd like now to define as the connection between heart and soul. To break it down very succinctly, hopefully, we have the human system, mind, body, and spirit. Mind is the translation between spirit and body. Mind is also the house of depression or ego or I. And depression is uniquely how we see the world. It is what makes you you. No one can quite understand it. We can certainly draw, uh, draw conclusions and commonalities, and we can also try to understand one another. That would be what's known as unity. Um, but depression is uniquely who you are. It's how you uniquely see the world. And so each mind is a fantastically amazing thing for that simple reason, but it's also what uniquely connects us all together. So we have that translation point between body and spirit known as mind. And then we have what that mind makes the connection of. The connection between the body and this, uh, the mind is heart. That's my, my word that we use for it. My word I use for it, but also the word we've kind of used throughout history and, and not specifically just in the English language. There's other words in different languages that make reference to this connection between the body and the mind. And it has a little bit to do with the heart of something or to put one's heart into the effort, the 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 that driving engine of the connection between the body and the mind, that driving engine we, is the heart in the body. So we, 
we say to give heart or put heart into something or to capture one's heart or, you know, so it has all of these different uses of verbiage, but I call it that connection of body and mind because the heart has its own little piece of each. It's just an anatomy and physiological sense. The heart has its own sine wave has an EKG we can read uh, the the synaptic uh, not synaptic I'm sorry this uh, synovial doesn't matter uh, the electrical firing of the heart so it has its own memory cells and its own uh, nervous system in that sense the an electrical system pulses to make itself beat but it also has tissue and is you know working with the cardiovascular system and all the other systems and providing. So it, it, it's very much enriched in that idea to be a connection between things. And that's what the mind is as well. So the connection of mind and body is heart. On the other side, the connection of mind and spirit, spirit being your definition of, you know, other, uh, the bioelectrical field of the body, um, what could involve a, a, a etherical or astral body, uh, the senses that we get that we don't quite consider to be senses in the way of the primary senses of the um, human system, the body itself, you know, sight, sound, hearing, smell, touch. Again, translations between body and spirit makes up, I'm sorry, body and mind makes up those things. Uh, which is what the mind is processing, but the instinctual or intuitive or um, what would be the, the home of the imagination, the ability to imagine is the connection between us, this us as in the royal us of mind and spirit, right? So this, this form of imagination we're allowed to have and use yeah, we use influence and we use senses, but the imagination is this inventive, creative thing we get to use. And that comes from the connection of mind and spirit. And thus it is soul. This is the defining word I use there is the soul because souls have magnitude, right? It has a place in time and space, a measurable function of time and space. Thus it gives it magnitude. And if something has magnitude, it can be referenced. So the understanding, the translation between spirit and mind becomes soul. It's a way of making spirit into something that has magnitude so that we can reference it and it, it can be referred to. And so from that understanding, then we would then have some sort of connection between heart and soul. Some sort of connection between the translation and understanding of the human system and those things that make up the way the human system interacts with the universe as a whole, the way the body could talk to the spirit in some way. It can do that through the mind, but the connective understandings would have to have a higher substantiality, right? Heart and soul would also have to have a way be connected, not just via the mind, some other factor. I think that's what we chase when we chase spirituality, right? We try to give spirituality this understanding of other or things that we can't possibly fathom or, or know or understand. We give it historically, remember, I'm, I still have to keep this in the realm of history. Historically, we use the theosophy or sorry, theology and, um, philosophy and theosophy to define 
what that is. Uh, we've used words like gods or gods or divination or uh, exaltations and all of these things have to do with divinity or some other higher power, right? In fact, the word power itself is a good placeholder because it's a measurement structure of like what that could look like. It also gives us words like execrate, which is kind of the opposite of uh, exaltate. Um, the antonym of execrate would be to bless, which is an exaltation factor. Uh, execrate means to declare to be evil or detestable or to just detest utterly. Um, it also gives us words like censorship, which is a, a big factor of history. Now, I thought about doing a specific episode on censor or to be censored or censorship. The problem with that is just how just charged that is right now. And I don't know if, if we're ready for that specific realm of things, but we could eventually. Now there is a difference between censor C E N S O R versus censor C E N S U R E. Uh, the U R E censor is a judgment involving condemnation theosophy and those types of things. Again, this is in the realm of that understanding of heart and the connection between heart and soul, right? Would that not be a godly connection? That which connects the soul to the heart. As much as, you know, in the human system that is in some ways mind, this goes beyond the human system, right? Because we're now beyond the idea of what humanity actually is. We're beyond the connection of body and mind and the connection of of mind and spirit because we know this body can't talk to the spirit. If it could, we wouldn't need mind. And so when we go past that, we're not just looking at spirit, although it's still part of the equation. We're also looking at the animation of the body. Now, in most cases, in a lot of philosophical and also the theosophical understandings, that is what is the supplantation of the soul into the body, right? Now, the problem there, I challenge, is that supplantation doesn't occur from the soul is implanted into the body so that the really the connection of spirit and mind can have an animation, which is to have the function of experience. And I think a lot would agree with that. But the, the challenge I make there is that the idea of gods, gods or higher power understanding has nothing to do with the mind. The mind is how we would go about the understanding of what that could be, would be, should be, might be, would be, is, isn't. That's the vernacular of translation, right? So we're talking about translational systems. Is that not really at a functional level what we're doing? The history of humanity is a translational system. The history of you is a translational system. And so I've been challenging in the last 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes or so, your translations of that understanding was someone else telling tales that you were telling as stories. Was someone telling a story about you that wasn't actually you, but then you adopted it as your story. 
it's pretty easy to let that happen. It's pretty easy to just go along with that. That's how, you know, when I talked in the fear episode about predators and prey and how fear is the one thing that works upon predators and prey, that idea of fear, it's easily applied to the understanding of history, tales and stories that someone could apply fear to corrupt it or coerce it or to make it what they want it to be. In the traditional Chinese uh, arts, uh, um, specific, uh, in medicine also, uh, when we learn Qigong and the Neigong arts, but in the combat system, you learn about this word known as fat, which is the, uh, the word reality, right? Um, you also learn that you can apply your reality to someone else. That is the understanding of willpower. In the Western world, we would kind of talk about willpower and how I could apply my willpower against yours. I could apply my mind against your mind. Now, my willpower, my thought, could be based on my power of understanding between my mind and my spirit, which is my soul, or my heart. I could put my physical effort against yours. And so then I can have a clash of heart and soul. You didn't think I'd bring it around, did you? Here it is. The clash between this understanding, if we look at it from the combative nature, which is usually where I look at things from, we would have the tale and stories of heart versus soul, a battle of wills, a battle of thoughts, a battle of implication of one applying themselves towards another thing. And in that understanding, we have these words that we've used for a very long time, known as censored and to censor. Not very censor, C-E-N-S-U-E-R, I'm sorry, S-U-R-E, is a judgment involving commentation, the act of blaming or condemning sternly, an official reprimand. Uh, typically, uh, the archaic uses would be an opinion or a judgment. Those would be passed down by the theosophical understanding, uh, typically used in, in the, the religious viewpoint, right? And then we also have censor, C-E-N-S-O-R, uh, a person who supervises conduct and morals, such as an official who examines materials uh, for objectionable matter um, to an official or, you know, in the Roman time would have been a magistrate uh, that takes the censor. Um, one of my favorite definitions of censor, S, uh, sorry, C-E-N-S-O-R, is a hypothetical psychic agency that represses unacceptable notions before they reach cons consciousness. Oh, that's going deep, right? So, uh, one of the definitions here is um, an official, a censor, was an official, you know, specifically in a time of war, who reads communications, such as letters, uh, and deletes material considered sensitive or harmful. Like, look at the definitions, please, of when we talk about something being censored or is to be censored. But again, I'm not trying not to stand on that horse right now. I'm trying not to stand on that horse. I'm trying not to stand on that soapbox and go too far down that world. I'm probably have to turn that into its own episode. Um, so I have two episodes that I have to remember to do. I, animosity and censors or censorship. But going back to, to history, really, I got to keep this back. It's what we started the episode about, talking about history, right? Tales and stories. If we're talking about tales and stories, yes, it is important to talk about these ideas of censorship and how, yes, the winner writes the history and the loser gets to hide it. And imagination comes into the factor. And even this combination between body and spirit, known as the mind, is the house in which all of this happens and is translated. But also, there is this thing that the true history of all humanity has been trying to figure out or maybe knew and forgot 
and is now trying to get back to is a better way to put that. What's the history of the connection between heart and soul? What is your history of heart or soul? What are the tales and stories that will you tell or could be told about or should be told about your connection between your body and your mind? What are the histories? What is the history of or will be the history of the tales and stories, the history told about your connection between your mind and your spirit, your soul? What would one person say about your heart or your soul? What would you say about your heart and your soul? Now you see the functional representation that all religions and all theosophy and all philosophy have used that you never had the understanding of. No one in my history, my education or my uh, learning or, you know, my fundamental representation of trying to find information. No one told me this. And so I don't know if it was hidden necessarily. And in fact, I'm willing to put it out in this episode that I believe this to be one of the hidden secrets, one of the hidden mysteries, right? I've, I've specifically talked about one for a very long time now, and that's that the universe is constantly seeking balance. That is one of the mysteries of the mystery schools. That is one of the hidden secrets to all existence is that the universe is constantly seeking balance. It does that asymmetrically. Okay. So maybe it's not a hidden secret that the world is seeking balance. The secret, I guess there would be that it does it asymmetrically. The universe uses asymmetry to balance things. I am now ready to put forth deciding right in this very moment to do so episode 60 history that one of the hidden histories and one of the hidden truths and one of the hidden mysteries in the mystery schools, in the secret societies and the societies of general uh, uh, mystery um, in the higher powers of governments and all of these different blah, 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 you name it. One of the secrets there, one of the mysteries, one of the hidden truths is this understanding that is used against people because they don't quite know what someone's talking about when they talk about the stories and tales about your heart and your soul, that it's a battle for your soul. It's a battle for your heart, the corruption of your soul, the corruption of your heart, these things that are used to instill fear. I would like to deliver you out of, I'm using very specific terms there because I'm trying to be quaint. I'm trying to be um, a little bit memeish. I'm trying to be a little bit uh, minstrelly or bardish or trying to be a little, um, a little bit cathartic. Actually, I'm always trying to be cathartic in my own uh, representation of this podcast, but that's for myself. But uh, I'm trying to be a little satirical, if you will, with using the idea that I would like to deliver you from the ignorance of not knowing what your heart and soul is to, to giving you an understanding because it's important because it can be used against you to tell false history, to tell 
tales, intentional, untrue tellings to corrupt your story, your account of. So when we talk about the religious side of things, specifically the organized religious, you know, natures, which I know everyone I'm sure is so happy that I bash upon very regularly, but that's how you wear things down. And that's how you erode things is this talk of the war for your soul to corrupt your soul. Let's use some different verbiage there. In fact, we can use verbiage like what they do, which is, and I'm using royal we, the big parties, the big powers, the big understandings, those who wish they had control over you. They use this understanding of control to control the narrative of your soul, your connection between mind and spirit. And so they have to create, they have to create this understanding of a God or gods or something that you must be in reverence of, that you must be in exaltation of, that you must bow down to. Their understanding, not yours. There, I'm not saying it's wrong to have an understanding of a God or gods or to even worship or to do any of those things. In fact, I believe it's an important part of humanity to have an understanding of what spirit is and to worship and revere and, and to try to understand what that is but not a specific person's understanding of, or not a specific organization's understanding of, or even a group or anything like that. No, it must be yours. Or it's not your history. It's not your tales and story. It's not yours. It's not you. And I want you to be more you. We want more you. Royal we. We want more you. I hope you want more you. That's part of self-awareness. It's part of mental health. It's to want more you for it to be you. To be your soul, not someone else's. When someone says about the fight for your soul or that, you know, Jesus died for your soul or, or Muhammad um, understands the connection of your soul, that that uh, Allah is the ha- home of your soul or to talk about that you really maybe don't even have a soul, the, that the um, understanding of there could be a corrupt soul or that you know, a specific God or gods can steal soul or take soul or have soul or be soul. Unless it is your understanding of it that you feel in your soul, feel in your connection between your mind and your spirit, then it's not the correct story. It's not your story. And thus it's not your history. It's not your telling of tales and stories about you and your you gotta, it has, if it's not that, it's not correct. And I don't typically put connotation on things, but yes, there is a correctness here. It must be yours. And so you see how the house of an understanding, the house, specifically a house, an encapsulation, enclosure of uh, something, the house of where it lives, has nothing to do with you. And thus an organized religious and religion has nothing to do with you. Not that you can't believe in what they're saying. If it fits true to you, it fits true to you, but it must be your understanding thereof. And if you haven't read the religious context in the books and understood what they're talking about, then, well, it can't be yours. And so this is what I talk about coercion and corruption as far as big governments and religious orders and secret societies and mystery schools. It's all just been very hidden in this understanding of a fight for your soul and your heart, a fight for the understanding of the connection 
of mind and spirit and mind and body. And so they have created definitions for what the combination of heart and soul is. That it's something greater that only they can tell you about and that you'll never understand. Well, you can try. If, if, you, if you listen to what we're saying, you'll find it. And thus, I have not tried to understand it or define it in that realm because that would mean me creating a religion, creating a theosophy, creating more than just a philosophical attempt. Buddhism has done a great job of kind of leading one into this understanding, but not taking them past heart and soul. I talked about last episode at the very end, about the last hour of the waypoint episode about void, which is where my understanding of these things come from. But I don't believe that the connection between the heart and the soul is a void. It's possible that it is and that it must be filled and thus it is a void because it is unfilled and thus the heart and soul must come together to fill some sort of something. If the mind is the home of the soul, the connection between our consciousness and spirit, there must be a home for that mind somewhere other than the body it now inhabits. And that could be the connection between heart and soul. And then I'm just throwing out possible philosophical understandings, um, anecdotal understandings, tales and stories. But I believe that as a whole, the history history of humanity has been searching for that. The specific history which we tell. And so history is a lie. History is just tales and stories of what we're trying to do here, which through definition could be understood as experience. Maybe that's a good word. Who knows? I don't think I'll choose that one, but I think it's a, it's a decent word for now as a placeholder that the connection between heart and soul is experience. It doesn't quite fit. Isn't quite right. I think it's a, again, a good placeholder for now because we often do try to define experience. That's what we tell stories and tales about as experiences, right? So it is history but it's not quite the right fit. It feels good enough for right now. So I'll say for right now, part of the connection, maybe a piece of the understanding of the connection between heart and soul, maybe experience, but it's like the action of, but the action of what a fantastical question. All of history has been trying to define. And I think is possible that we at one point knew. And so when I look at history nowadays, knowing that my own history and probably your own history in some way has been added to corrupted, whatever word you want to add at this point, I know I use some negative connotary words, but has not been yours or your own has been your retelling of other people's versions. I think so true is also true to history is so to history. As a group history, a, a civilizational history, a, a humane or humanity history. 
and we just haven't learned from the past, right? If you if you haven't learned from the past, you're doomed to repeat it in the present. What history of repeat are we in? What cycle are we in? Remember, everything cycle. I've defined that once before with chaos, creation, order, and destruction. It's cyclical, right? If we're in this cycle, what part of the cycle are we in? And what part do we forget or miss? And are we in just like some like non-corrective loop, which would be known as order? Are we just ordering things over and over and over again to get a better understanding so that we can destroy it to actually be back to chaos, to be back to infinite possibility. Is that why we keep eliminating the, and why question, subjective question, spiritual question, is that why we keep eliminating possibilities is because we're trying to get to the destruction of it all so we can get back to chaos, we can get back to infinite possibility? Is that the necessity of having created world religions and, and, and cultural societies is to define some sort of methodology to get back to infinite possibility, get back to the thing we've always been looking for, that connection of heart and, and soul. That some of the greatest minds in history and also the non-greatest, however you want to measure that, have pondered. Is that not the truest, as of right now, history of humanity? Has not all great civilization and culture tried to represent it in some way, try to find it, define it, understand it, become it? This connection of heart and soul. What is it? Well, I can tell you from what I've divined or gleaned or come to understand, the connection between heart and soul must be something akin to the mind as the connection between body and spirit. Body and spirit can never speak to each other. They can't. They have no way to converse. I will get into that more in a future episode because it has to do with what I talked about last episode and, and the waypoint episode at the very end of it, of this thing known as void. It's about the, uh, I believe it's about the last half hour to 20 minutes of that episode. Probably the last 15 minutes I really get into it. But there's no way for the body to talk to the spirit. It, it doesn't functionally have the process to do so. And so it has to go through an intermediary. It has to go through the mind has to say, hey, mind, can you tell spirit this for me? And the same thing for the spirit. The spirit goes, hey, mind, I don't have time for this. Can you tell body this? And oftentimes we get the transitory translation and one side picks up on it through that vernacular translation, but the mind doesn't figure it out. So then the body either has to re-signal back to the mind to say, Hey, 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 the spirit, the spirit tried to tell us something. I don't know what it was though. You got to tell me, but I know it tried. I did pick up on that. And so we get the woo woo stuff that the diviners talk about, that the spiritual people talk about, that they say they get these downloads or they get these feelings that they get. I get the chills up and down my back and down my arms. I get the axial, you know, the goosebump, the chill, this, this feeling that builds that I'm like, no, I'm onto something. Right. 
I get that. It took me a while to really recognize it and to work with it. And that's intuition and intuitive nature. And that's the other senses of the spirit that do have some sort of translation function, but the translation itself has to go through the mind. It's not that the body can't feel the spirit or interact with the spirit. That's absolutely possible. It's when we talk about auras and we talk about etherical bodies and all these things. It's why we try to understand the spiritual body with the physical body. So there is connection and commonality, but the understanding has to come through the translation of the body to the spirit through the mind or vice versa from spirit down to body has to go through the mind because neither knows what the other one's fucking talking about. The spirit doesn't know these base functional things as the body. It's base functional. It's, 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 its own weird collaboration of cells and organisms, trillions of them that, you know, come together to create these vessels that the, the spirit was like, well, I'm going to throw a soul in there, which is my connection to that mind thing there. Uh, I'm going to put that in there and the body will I'll figure it out. Right. To give you an, a representative understanding of that, just as, an, as a story, a narrative, right. The body being all, trillions of cells and bacteria all doing one thing, living, right? They're all doing their functions to live. It's the house in which we live in where these amazing coral reefs that just get to walk around and exist is no different than if we want to go out to the spiritual level to give, to give a reference of no difference, a, a scale, to go out to the spiritual level of the spiritual level possibly being on the vastness of all of the different frequencies, the infinite amount of frequencies that could possibly exist in the universe for every functional idea of understanding that goes out to the void. That's massive, massive scale, right? So is the body to the body. And so they don't have a method to talk to one another directly because there's no translate. There's no Rosetta stone for that. But the body being the body and the spirit being the spirit figured one out. We call it the mind. So when the spirit needs the body to understand something, it tells the mind. And sometimes the mind doesn't pick up on it because even there can be some disconnect. We can have an empty soul, right? Or half full or however you want to describe it. And so the translation might come down, but the body doesn't know how to translate it. It does know that there was a conversation though. It does know that there was some sort of connection. So a diviner or a spiritual person or someone working in the woo-woo world of all of those different amazing things like tarot and, and divination and even spiritual leaders in religious, you know, organizations um, can have that some sort of feeling in the body. The body just doesn't know what that is. There's no way for them to discuss like, Hey, I got this. That means you need this. Okay. I'll tell the mind that. No, because the mind is barely paying attention to what the body is telling it on a regular basis. But anyway, before I go too far into that whole tract of things, on that same scale, right, we also have heart and soul. Stepping up from the connection between the body and the mind, its translational functions go through heart. The way the body has a conversation with the mind is through the heart. That connection, right? 
It's what we call it, to have heart, to put effort in, to have an understanding of the complexity of the heart is the body's piece, that it's its. It's not ours. The heart isn't the mind's. It's not the consciousness's. We can't sit there and go, okay, beat, 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 stop beating, beat harder, beat faster. We can put inputs in that might create that function or slow down or, you know, rest. We definitely have mental capacities to have that conversation, meditation, exercise. You know, we can ask the body to do things to have that conversation through the heart. Speeding up, slowing down, beating harder, beating softer. And, and thus the heart can also tell us things back the other way. It can say, whoa, you're pushing me a little too hard. I'm getting a little too rate. My heart's getting a little too, too up there. Okay. Or it can say like, hey, there's something going on, palpitation. So it, it, there is a, a way to connect back and forth for that. But the heart is just the representation of all of those different conversations that the body's trying to have with us. But the heart is the representation that it's the body's. It's not ours. It's not our heart. It's the body's heart. We don't have full control over it because we're not ready for that. We still need that intermediary of, okay, the body gets its heart and we can have a conversation with it. And thus that's the connection between body and mind is the fact that we do give the body the control of the heart. Just like the spirit gave the mind control over the body. We gave the body control over the heart. And so going the other way, stepping the other direction for soul, the soul is the thing the mind doesn't get to control. It left control with spirit. But we can interact through it. And so these connective pieces get put into play. Now on the other side of that, equation. This is what I'm getting at with the whole history of humanity and what we're trying to figure out and what we've always tried to chase after. And maybe in some way once new, I have either forgotten or hidden is this thing, you know, I'm placeholding with the idea of experience is if we left control of the heart with the body and we left control of the soul with the spirit, What is those two connections? What does that look like? What did those two things leave control to? Was it experience? What does it create? What does it order? What does it destroy? What chaos is it? What are, what are its cyclical factors? What are its primordial understandings? Because experience has that methodology, but it's, again, just a placeholder, not quite there. But I will say in all of that, history of it all, right? We've been trying to figure that out for a really long time. And we've done some great things and some terrible things to do it. So before I go too farther on that, I know I'm losing it just a little bit, so I'm going to let it go for now. Sometimes we must. Sometimes we have to put down the pen. Sometimes we have to stop writing the story. Sometimes we have to step aside or step away and come back to later. Sometimes we need to reread or rewrite 
the history of it all, to better understand the narratives we're trying to talk about, to tell, the tales and the stories of ourselves, for ourselves. So please ponder your tales and your stories. Ponder your history. Make sure it's yours, please. Try to pick out the pieces that weren't. Get rid of them. Rewrite them. Readjust or or, or re-bring them in. Write a different book. Put them in a different uh, bound edition. Make some corrections. Ponder on your connection between your heart and your soul. And that they're yours. They're yours down to the degree that your depression is your minds, your heart is your bodies, and your soul is your spirits. And so the house of those things, the house of the next step up, is the heart, the depression, and the soul. I've been waiting a really long time to put that conclusion together, that there is some intermediary between those two things, heart and soul. It's not mind, because mind is the connection between body and spirit. The higher functions of the understandings of these things are the connection between body and mind is heart, and the connection between spirit and mind is soul. But what translates well between the heart and the soul is depression. It's the higher function of mind. It's the higher function of consciousness. Depression. And so the historical tale is that connection. The historical secret, the mysterial thing that we've been throwing around in secret societies and mystery schools and higher government powers and these vast arrays of wealthy individuals out there who get to have these secret conversations of maybe possibly hidden histories and understandings is that there is heart and soul. And there's this conversation of filling them or describing them. And what those things talk about are the connections between the human system pieces. And so we work with these Trinity ideas. And so the coin The measurement between body and spirit, its history, its tales and stories, is the mind. And the better interplay of connections from those are heart, depression, and soul. And so the higher level of body is to speak of the heart, its connection between mind and body. And thus, it is the conversation between the heart and the depression. And higher level of the conversation between body and mind is soul and it's conversion or conversation or translation. It's vernacular system that it uses to talk to the heart is depression. And so then we have mind, I'm sorry, we have body, mind, and spirit. We have heart, depression, and soul. What is this is the, one of the great questions or some of the great questions that I believe led to the mystery schools, led to secret societies, led to the Atlantean mysteries or, or stories thereof, led to religions being born, led to civilizations being put together, group understandings of, led to war and, and to terrible things, but also led to great things of industry and, and, and 
revolution and golden ages and both sides led to the cyclical understanding that we're in is that we now must upgrade that understanding one more time. It's what we've been trying to do for so long. And again, maybe had, maybe we're just chasing the history because the history had become tales that weren't our own stories that weren't our own. We're trying to get back to what those really were just like we should do with ourselves. And so the step above is to talk about what the connection between depression and heart is and what the connection between depression and soul is. And it might be specifically when we're talking about the ideas of reincarnation, be it reincarnation into another human physical life, be it reincarnation into the heaven of our understanding or the hell of our understanding, depending on what functional functionality you believe in there or non-existence. If you want to believe that that's just the, you know, that's what you reincarnate into reincarnation incorporates all of those things. I hope I kind of explained that in the reincarnation episode. If I did not, again, I have failed you and I apologize, but what is those higher understandings? The translation between heart and depression, the translation between uh, soul and depression. So what is the connection between using the bottom to work up? What is the connection between heart and depression that is still in control of the heart. I have some thoughts and ideas. I'm not quite ready to share them, but I have some thoughts and ideas there. And then to the other side, what is the connection between the depression and the soul that is also in, that is in control? I'm sorry, that the soul has control of that. The depression is not that we've left it with those control structures. Because when we figure out that subset, right, when we figure out what those two things are, we can go through the almost algebraical equation to move the understanding of the mind, the consciousness, that in which we are existent in from mind to depression to whatever its higher form might be. And that that is something I believe to be great. So great that entire schools of thought and thinking and understanding have been built and predicated on the idea that that is the historical reference for which we are seeking or have lost. But we can start with doing that in, inside of ourselves looking at our history, looking at the tales and the stories that have been told, will be told, or should be told, to roll our D20 for initiative, to get ready to have our adventures, to tell the revelry tales of what occurred or happened or will or could, to have wonderful stories, to have wonderful tales, to modify those that have been told if they do not currently fit the apparatus in which we exist, that in which is of our minds, us, but also you, 
and yours. So please take some time to look back at your history. Tell your tales, tell your story to yourself, for yourself, of yourself. And I will continue to ponder on these connections that I try to philosophically figure out uh, in some weird uh, obtuse way. And hopefully eventually one day I'll have an answer or we will get closer together. Because that's the next step on the journey. As we make these connections, we must also to connect our histories and find out what they really are. I will catch you on the next one. Thank you very much for listening. As always, please go check out tamingindresses.com. Uh, check out the archive. Um, if you would like me to speak in, in an event that you're holding or to book me for some sort of event, please uh, send me a message with the booking. Uh, if you just want to tell me something, tell me I'm an idiot. If you really feel like it, you can do it on the review page, uh, review on the contact form. Uh, sorry, on the contact page, there's a review form. There's also just a general contact form. Happy to hear from you if you'd like. Please check out taminghindrances.com um, reviews. I have some reviews on some products there. Or just head over to purebulk.com and get yourself some sweet supplements. I highly recommend getting into the fall season or any really time of year. Uh, their immune support supplement is amazing. Um, Cliff High's Pure Sleep is great for getting good sleep. A very important thing if we're to continue having a good uh, understanding of our history, to have good recollection, clean mind states. Um, yeah, all of those things and more. And I will uh, I'll see you on the next one. Happy history. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.